Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. And I think the only way to begin today, I, I really do. I think the only way I can begin this episode today is by saying, wow. Wow. And I mean, really, wow. Did you hear the sermon? Did you listen to the sermon? Can you believe the things that were being said in the sermon? Can you believe the points that were being made in the sermon? As I was listening to the sermon, it, it felt like seeing a train wreck, right? You, you see the train wreck begin and, and you're like, oh no, oh no, I can't look, I can't look, I can't look. I gotta close my eyes. I, I gotta turn my head. I cannot watch this, but, 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 oh, oh, I, ca I gotta see how it ends. I, oh, that's horrible. That train wreck is horrible. This, this is a disaster. And and listening to the sermon, I kind of felt like, oh, this this is a train wreck. Oh no, I I need to stop. I need, oh, I've got to finish it. I've got to finish it. And then boom, it came to a crashing end. So today we're going to advance our discussion about the sermon. Oh wait a minute. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I apologize. I'm talking about yesterday's episode. You need to go listen to it. You see, yesterday I played a sermon by Pastor Robert Jeffress of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas. And today I have the iPad in my hand once more, and we're going to advance our discussion about that sermon. But before we get started, I, I guess I guess what I really need to do is I need to stop for a second and, and give everyone a proper welcome. A, a proper introduction is required. So let's do this. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. It is Wednesday, July the 17th, 2019. It is currently 2.21 p.m. Central Time right here in very hot West Texas. It's like 197,000 degrees outside. Okay. All right. Maybe that's a little hyperbole. It is very hot, but welcome. I'm going to make this hopefully interesting, informative, and challenging. So, so before we do a quick review, get everyone on the same page, I need to do something right here at the beginning. All right. You need to be prepared. Because I'm going to say some things over the next few minutes, no matter how many minutes that's it's going to be required, but I'm about to start saying some things that's going to probably upset you. I'm going to make a lot of you extremely mad at me. I'm going to make some of you hate me. I'm going to make some of you despise me. And you're going to get very frustrated, very irritated, and possibly very angry. But here's, here's what I, I ask of you. No matter how much you may disagree with me, I ask of you to try to understand what I'm trying to accomplish by saying the things I'm about to say. You see, I believe something has occurred, all right? And I believe the sermon by Pastor Robert Jeffress is a, is a example. It is proof of my concern. Now, this has been going on for a very long time. However, again, this sermon by Pastor Robert Jeffress is a current example of it. It's, it's, it's a current, it's current proof, right? It's, 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 it's current um, evidence to my, my concern here. I think that's the best way to state it. Let me explain my concern. I believe a new Christianity has arisen. Now, when did this new Christianity begin? We could, we could have you know, a history lesson about it, but there is a new Christianity that has emerged. And the way this new Christianity has emerged is someone went into the kitchen 
And they opened their cabinets and they tried to find a large mixing bowl. And they're, oh, there it is. And they, they reached up, grabbed that mixing bowl and put it on the counter. And they, they laid out their ingredients. First, they had a little pro-American political ideology. Pro-American political ideology. And they, they placed it in the bowl. They had nationalism. They threw that in the bowl, all right? So pro-American uh, political ideology, nationalism, and patriotism, they, they threw all of that in. So patriotism, a pro-American political ideology, nationalism, and then they threw in some Christianity. They mixed it all together, and then they placed it in the oven, and when the timer went ding, they took it out, and there they said, here is Christianity. But it was no longer biblical Christianity. It was an American Christianity. An American Christianity where people were now seeing the Bible, reading the Bible through the lens of the American Constitution, reading the Bible through the lens of the red, white, and blue, reading the Bible through the lens of the American flag. Because they now had a Christianity that was, in, that was being greatly influenced by a pro-American political ideology, by nationalism, and by patriotism. And, and that's the way they, they read the Bible. That's the way they see the Bible. That's the way they read and see the world. But that's not the way biblical Christianity works. Biblical Christianity says, no, 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 no. Christianity transcends your nation, your country, your patriotism, your nationalism, your pro-American political ideology. For those of us who are American who are listening to this, I know we have people who listen to us from around the world. So you just you just kind of listen into some family discussion here, okay? This is dealing with American Christians. Now you can apply it to your own country because I, I can't speak to other countries. I'm not an expert there, but I live here in America and I, I have witnessed this. And I believe many Christians from outside of America they probably look at how some Christians think and they're like, that's not Christianity. What is that? It's a new form of Christianity. It's American Christianity. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. We are supposed, listen, our thinking is supposed to be guided, controlled, and shaped by the words of Scripture. We have to have a transformation, a renewing of our mind, and it comes through the words of God as recorded in the pages of Scripture. It is Scripture that should control the way we think. It is Scripture that should help us see the world. And we don't see the world through the lens of the Constitution or the American flag. No, we would see the American flag and the Constitution through the lens of Scripture. Scripture is the dominating force for a Christian. We, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I truly believe that if, you, if we're followers of Christ and we try to live according to the scripture, they will make us a good citizen here on earth, but our true citizenship is in heaven. Now, I believe we can be grateful for our country. We can be thankful for the freedoms that we have, the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech. We have many wonderful freedoms and many opportunities and many, uh, you know, materialistic blessings of being an America. There's lots of wonderful things. But our true understanding and allegiance is to the scriptures. And Christians need to be aware of this hybrid, fake Christianity that has emerged, and in many cases, 
and has pushed out biblical Christianity, and people don't even realize they've embraced this new kind. And Pastor Robert Jeffress, in his sermon, to me, that it sounded like a, this 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 hybrid fake form of Christianity. So so I, that's that's my goal is to try to wake you up and make you real make you look at your Christianity and go, is it legit, or did it was it cooked up in someone's you know pro American kitchen? Okay, I want a Christianity that comes from the pages of the Bible. I don't want the Christianity that derives from a pro-American political ideology, patriotism, and nationalism. I want a Christianity that derives from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul, from the books of the Old Testament. That's where I want my Christianity to come from. Not the Constitution of the United States of America. That shouldn't be a radical thought. But for some reason, it is, and that tells you the sad state of Christianity today. But that's, that could be a whole different message. But, but that's, I'm going to try to challenge that in what I'm about to say. So let's set this up. Are you ready? Here we go. Here we go. Pastor Robert Jeffress preached a sermon. Oh, well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let, let's do it this way. Yesterday, I don't remember if it was morning, afternoon, I started seeing all these notifications about a sermon. And when you started saying, wait, this website's talking about this sermon. This website's talking about this sermon. They're talking about this sermon on American Family Radio. Janet Mefford, who has a radio program that also airs on American Family Radio, she's going to have Pastor Robert Jeffress on the radio to talk about this sermon. Okay, when I started seeing all of this, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I need to pay attention to this sermon. We need, we need to discuss this. So first, what's the title of the sermon? The title of the sermon is The Coming Implosion of America. Whoa, America's about to implode? There's a coming implosion coming to America? All right, that's the kind of title that will get some attention. That's the kind of title that people are going to pay attention to. But when you add in that it was preached by Pastor Robert Jeffress, okay, now this sermon's really going to get some attention because for those who do not know who Pastor Robert Jeffress is, well, first, he's the pastor of a very famous church, First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Here in Texas, that's a very well-known church. That church is known throughout the world. He's very well-known in Texas because um, First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, did a big building project. They were going to demolish a number of buildings in downtown Dallas, implode them, bring them down, and then they were going to build in their place a shiny, massive new, and in their words, a new campus. Instead of calling it a church, a campus, right? We could get into a discussion there, but we won't, all right? That's a whole different recording. Um, and the I remember all the newspaper articles about them. I cannot remember the, the dollar figure, but it was astronomical. I mean, you're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars to build this just like you know, earthly, majestic kingdom in downtown Dallas of First Baptist Church. And there was lots of criticisms about it. Okay, so so that, that he was already in the news all the way back then. But then, especially since Trump announced his candidacy and won the presidency, Pastor Robert Jeffress is one of very outspoken supporter for not only Donald Trump, but for lots of Republican ide uh, ideologies and very very political in his support and, and his speech. He's on Fox News I wouldn't say all the time, but frequently he's on Fox News and he's very, and, and my assessment of him has always been he's more political than he is biblical. And I, and I can't say that's a fair assessment because I don't listen to all of his preaching. However, his sermon, The Coming Implosion of America, 
really proves my assessment is at least partially correct because it's more political than it is biblical. If you listen to the sermon, not a lot of he's not he's not expounding scripture. He's not expounding scripture. You know, to, and 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 so you know whatever. So. So here's what we're going to do. We're, we're, that, that, that's how it all happened. I, I heard the discussion about it, and I'm like, whoa, you know, I, I've got to start doing some research about this. So, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just give you some, a couple of facts. And that's why the sermon is, is, is getting so much notice is because it's pre, it was preached by Pastor Robert Jeffress. That's really key there. It's probably why it's getting so much attention. So let's do a couple of things. It sounds like, from my research, that the sermon was originally preached at, at a Bible prophecy conference held by Lamb and Lion Ministries. And they're headquartered here in Texas, I believe. So he preached the sermon at the Lamb and Lion Bible prophecy conference, which is just kind of interesting because this sermon is really not Bible prophecy. Right? And not really, not in a, a meaningful way. So I found that interesting. However, I did a little research. And I found that he preached a very similar sermon. It may have been, you know, been basically the same sermon with maybe a few things added at a church in Tennessee for their, I guess you could call it their 4th of July celebration. And I watched the video of that entire so-called church service with Pastor Robert Jeffress preaching basically the same sermon. It, it, to me, it, it's very similar. And what can I say about what I witnessed? I, I wanted to post the video on our church app, and you can get our church app by going to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, doing a search for VBC, which stands for Victory Baptist Church, the number 66, VBC 66, all run together, VBC 66, get the app. You have access to everything, not just what you're hearing today, live broadcast, radio, everything. It's church history, philosophy, hermeneutics, it's all there. All right. I wanted to post the video of this church service on the app, but I was afraid that new people who get the app would think that I somehow support it when I believe what I witnessed in the video of this church service that Pastor Robert Jeffress was a part of. I would classify it as blasphemous, and I would classify it as an example of how the American church is becoming a harlot. And I know by saying that I'm going to make some people mad, but let me explain. Here was a church service, a church service. Let's remind ourselves, the church meets together as the bride of Christ to worship Christ, to pray to Christ, to preach his word, to administer the ordinances in a biblical way, or I know some refer to them as sacraments, but I refer to them as ordinance, uh, to, to administer the ordinance, to, to preach his word, to worship him. It's about God. Our focus when at church is about God, the worship of him. But here was a church service where the focus definitely felt like was America. They sang patriotic songs. There was the American flag. They had little fireworks go off in the sanctuary during patriotic songs. They shot off streamers. Woo! I mean, that's what church is all about. The Pledge of the Allegiance. They did this little skit about the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm, I'm like, I'm sitting there watching all this and going, is this a church or is this a pro-American rally? It reminded me, at least in part, of ancient Israel. 
There was the temple where God was to be worshipped, but they moved in all of this idolatry. Some of the wicked kings did. We would have to go through all the different historical times that this occurred. But the temple would be corrupted by idolatry. To me, the idol in this church, the golden calf in this church was America, the American flag. And then Robert Jeffers comes along to preach his sermon very similar to what he preached at the Bible conference. Once again, which is more America, 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 America. Now, God is thrown in. Please don't think that, I'm not, I'm not saying he didn't throw in God, but again, that because it's the mixing bowl. Throw in a little Christianity, throw in a, a little pro-American political ideology, throw in nationalism, throw in patriotism, and voila, we call it Christianity when it is not. The, 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 the video of that is just a travesty and it's blasphemous, and it, and it shows the church being a harlot. It's supposed to be the bride of Christ, not the bride of America. I know I'm already making some people mad. So, so I saw all of that, and then I, you know, I played the sermon yesterday. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go through his major points of the sermon, offers hopefully a brief critique, and then I'm going to play for you the audio of his interview on American Family Radio, Janet Medford's radio program. Now, I know it airs on other networks as well, but I heard it on American Family Radio, and that's where I took the audio from. Now, the reason I'm playing, I played his sermon, unedited, no commentary, the reason I did that. And again, uh, the, the, the version that I played yesterday was from, was from Lamb and Lion Ministries, and they didn't play the whole thing. Um, but the, to try to find the whole thing, you end up with YouTube videos and well, I needed the audio, and I know I could try to rip the audio from the YouTube video, but th this is the current way that I'm, I'm being able to accomplish things. So hopefully that makes sense to you. Um, so I, wanted every, I want everyone to hear Robert Jeffress and his own words. I don't want you to just hear what I, I am telling you, he said. I want you to hear it for yourself. And so I want Janet Mefford and, and Robert Jeffress to speak about the sermon and listen to their defense of it. I, I don't even think they're going to defend it because I don't believe 90% of Christians will believe he said or did anything wrong. Well, let's go through his major points and then, and then I'll offer some criticism. I'll try not to take too long. We're at the 18-minute mark and I'll try to, to speed up as fast as I can, all right? Here we go. Are you ready? I mean, I want you to get your money's worth because you pay large amounts of money for each episode. You know, your subscription. Okay, I'm joking. Okay. These are free, so give me a little leeway to be able to speak uh, a little in, at length because I want this to be uh, beneficial. All right? I, I want us to really learn something in all of this. All right. So let's go to the sermon. The coming implosion of America by Pastor Robert Jeffress from First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas. Um, again, um, you know, the reason the sermon has gotten so much impact because of him being, he's, you know, very pro-Trump on Fox News. I think he may even be in, involved somehow with the Trump administration. I don't know if it, as a sp spiritual advisor or something, but he's very much connected to the whole political world. All right. So his name, his position, his power, his church, uh, the, the sermon now is getting recognition and being talked about. And so we are, we're going to talk about it as well. So here we go. He begins his sermon by describing what occurred in Dallas when they brought down the old buildings so before they could build their shiny new campus, in their words, campus. And what they did is they hired some people to come in to implode the old buildings before they could build the new. Now, this process of implosion, he described they brought in dynamite, placed it as strategic parts of the old buildings, right? Some structural key points, right? And then they set off the dynamite, 
all these explosions. And the way he describes it, after the explosions and after the sound of the explosions were over, there was just silence. Nothing happened. And his immediate thought was, whoa, wait, something went wrong. And then all of a sudden, each building imploded in on itself, not damaging any of the other buildings around it there in downtown Dallas. Implosion. And so he uses that event as the the basis for his analogy that he's going to use in his sermon. And basically it goes like this. How does an implosion occur? You have explosions, you have a pause, and then the implosion occurs. So explosion, pause, implosion. He makes an argument that there have been explosions in the United States of America, and now, in a sense, a pause, and we're just waiting for the inevitable implosion to occur here in the United States of America. America is going to implode on itself. Now, I don't know if the sermon that was aired, I don't remember exactly if the sermon aired by Lamb and Line Ministries have had him say what the hope is, but Typically, that what, he, what a pastor like this who would say this implosion is coming upon the nation would say the only hope is if, uh, if we repent and then, you know, we can avoid the implosion. All right. And we could get into a discussion about that. But he says there's been some explosions. Now, what were the explosions that he thinks has occurred in America that's going to lead to an inevitable implosion of our country? He names three explosions. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one. And all three are Supreme Court rulings. Supreme Court ruling to basically remove prayer from the public school. And uh, explosion number two, Roe v. Wade to make abortion legal. And uh, Supreme Court ruling number three or explosion number three, the removal of sodomy laws. Right? Laws that ban or outlaw sodomy or homosexuality. Right? These are the three. Now, he, he names the Supreme Court cases, and he goes through all of that. I'm not going to do all of that. But let's go through each three. So number one, there, there used to be a time in America where there was a, a teacher-led, school-led prayer offered up, I guess, in the morning time for students. Now, it was on a voluntary basis, so some students could get up and walk out, but it was going to be led, right? Someone was going to say this prayer. He said it was a 22-word prayer. I mean, I don't remember. Um, I think that was before my time of being in school, and if it did happen in my school, I definitely don't remember it. But a 22-word prayer, I don't know how, many, how, how long the words were, and I don't remember the exact words. I could probably look them up. But this, this was a prayer stated by the school, by someone in the school, whether over the PA system or the teacher, and then uh, the kids would participate, and if the kid did not want to, they could step out. And there was a law passed that basically says you cannot do that. That's unconstitutional. That's wrong. And that law then led to things like removing of the Ten Commandments being posted in schools. And he says this was an explosion that will lead to an implosion on our nation because that was wrong. And in his belief, that was unconstitutional and it was ungodly and it, was, it will bring God's judgment upon this nation. Now, this is where I'm going to make some people mad. I don't believe there should be a faculty school-led prayer in public schools. I don't believe the Bible should be taught in a public school. It's a public school. Public school. It's not a church. It's not the public school's job 
to promote Christianity, teach Christianity, defend Christianity, teach the Bible, evangelize. It's not their job. It's the job of the church and of Christians. You see, it's wonderful to have a led prayer by a school that's, you know, that at least is accepted by Christians and it's kind of, even if it's not pro-Christian, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely in line with Christian ideas to some level. It's, it's wonderful to do that when, you know, 95% of the country would claim they're, they're Christians, they're religious, and they got no problem with it. But the country changes. And so people of different faiths who are, who, are, who maybe don't have a faith, atheist, maybe they're, um, Maybe they are a Muslim, maybe they're Buddhist, maybe they belong to the Church of Satan. They decide, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, this prayer singles us out because if we don't want to participate, we have to get up and go out. And my kid doesn't want to be singled out that way. This is not right, this is not fair. What about our rights? So it's what, see, this is what Christians do. They want to defend that prayer. As long as that prayer, though, is a prayer that would not, would not be, go against Christianity. In other words, they don't want a Muslim to lead prayer in the school. They don't want a Satanist to lead a prayer to Satan in the school. They don't want... Wait, wait. You, if you demand the right, you have to extend the right. And the school is not the place to have a religious war and who gets to pray and what kind of prayer is prayed because that... that no! But what they wanted is some kind of general prayer that at least supports the idea of theism. Well, if you just want a general prayer that doesn't really name a deity and it's just theism, well, I don't even know why Christian parents would be happy with that because that's not a Christian prayer. And if you're not praying to the Christian God, if Christianity is true, then you're not praying to a God. So that shouldn't even make Christian parents happy. It's not going to make Muslim parents happy because it's not a prayer to Allah. It's, gonna, it's not going to make a Satanist happy. It's not a prayer to, quote-unquote, Satan, which is more of a philosophy than actual. They don't actually believe in Satan. Okay, we won't even get into a whole history of Satanism. But you get the idea. The whole thing is just ludicrous and ridiculous. And, and, I, and to me, I could care less if the public... What I need the public school to do is focus on actually teaching academics. And in many cases, I question their ability to even accomplish that. The last thing I want them to do is involved in religious instruction. But he believes this is an, an explosion that will lead to an implosion. And let me just make this very clear. Hey, churches, if you're so worried about those kids not being able to say a prayer, all churches... In America, can be open. Their, they can open their doors Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at 6 a.m. and say, hey, kids, on your way to school, stop by. We'll lead you in prayer. You can pray. Christian kids can show up to school and say, hey, hey, to all my classmates, uh, each morning I'm going to meet right here and I'm going to pray. And if you're invited. No matter what you believe, you're invited and we will pray for the day, pray for our teachers, pray for the safety of our school, pray for each other. You can bring your prayer request and I will pray each day right here. And a student-led prayer, not interrupting a class, not causing any problems right there before, before school starts. A, a Christian kid could do that. But no, 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 no. Let's not put the responsibility on the Christian kids. Let's not put the responsibility on the church. Let's somehow demand that the public school does the job of Christians and the church. That's not an implosion. That's not an explosion. That's the idea that we live in a country that is not predominantly Christian, or at least it's changing. And you have to accept the fact that you live in a free country, right, with a freedom of religion. And that doesn't mean your religion gets to become the dominant way that it's that's placed and pushed upon other people. And then they have to, to be 
you know, singled out by saying, I don't want to participate. No, just, just teach. You know, he makes a, a, oh, they took the Ten Commandments out of the school and then, oh no, they, they can't be posted. Well, if you want the Ten Commandments posted, well, do we put the, the, the major points of Islam there? Do we put the nine principles of, of a Satanist? I think it's nine principles. I don't have my Satanic Bible around me somewhere. Yes, I own a Satanic Bible. Um, it, it's a philosophy book. If you didn't know anything about it, I don't, I don't see it right now. But that nine points, eight points of a Satanist, do you want them posted? No, 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 no. I don't want those posted. I want the Ten Commandments, which comes from the Bible. <laughs> okay, right? So now, now if you want to post those laws, right? If you want laws posted, then just take the laws not from the Ten Commandments. Take them from, you know, here are some laws of our country, right? There's a law in our country that thou shalt not murder, Right? But just don't state it in religious language. Use it in legal language and say, I'm not taking them from the Ten Commandments. I'm taking them from the legal code of the state of Texas or whatever. If you want to do that. But it's, it's just like so many people want the public school to do the job of the church. And that's not the job of the church. He believes that's an explosion that will lead to an implosion. I believe it's the inevitable, uh, the inevitable way that happens in society. There was a time in America that most Americans were predominantly A, claimed to be Christian, and A, predominantly claimed to be religious, and had some ac acceptance of the authority of Scripture and the Bible. But those times have changed. And you have to accept that fact. And if you want freedom... You have to extend freedom. If you want rights, you have to extend rights. And if you want that freedom, and we've already seen this play out. We, we need to start, you know, the, the, the city council with a prayer to God, right? And then, and then the Satanists come along and go, okay, well, if you're going to have a prayer to start the city council to your God, then we want to be able to, to say a prayer to Satan. And I think, I can't remember where it was. Some of the city officials got up and walked out. Well, wait a minute. Why would you get up and walk? Well, because we don't like that prayer. Well, that's the whole problem. <laughs> There's a bazillion different religions and faiths. You're going to have a prayer to appease everyone? Man, that's just crazy. No one is stopping a Christian kid from praying in school. He can pray. He, he doesn't have to lay down on the floor and make a spectacle of himself, but he can pray silently. He can pray before his meal. He can pray. Now, if they try to stop that, now that's where we have an issue. But the school doesn't need to be involved in it. Kids can get together each day and meet at the flagpole and pray. I know that do once a year, but you can do it every day. You, the kids can meet after school. They can show up there on Saturday and sit around the flagpole all day Saturday praying. Churches can be open 24 hours a day for prayer. There's lots of ways to pray. <laughs> But no, we have, it's got to be the school. It, it, that's just a crazy idea. So that's number one. Number two, his second explosion, Roe v. Wade, right? The, the Supreme Court decision that basically made uh, abortion legal in the United States of America. Now, he believes this was an explosion that's going to lead in a, to an implosion upon our country because this is a, a horrific thing. And it's going to lead to our downfall and our destruction. Well, Roe v. Wade happened. It's been a while. It's been a long time. We're here in 2019 now. But let's consider this. First, let me make it very clear. I am against abortion. I believe abortion is murder. I believe it's insane. I believe it's crazy. I believe, you know, uh, you take two, uh, uh, you take a married couple. Or just take a woman, right? Just take a woman, whether she's married or not. She gets pregnant. She goes in. She gets the test, finds out she's pregnant. She goes back. They want to see the development, right? 
they do the sonogram, the, the ultrasound. They want to they want to they want to see the development. And guess what? When they show you the baby on the monitor, oh look, look, it, there's its heartbeat. Wait, wait, whose heartbeat? Your baby's heartbeat. Wait, is it alive or it's not alive? Yeah, look, there's your baby's heartbeat. Oh, look, look, your baby's sucking its thumb. Oh, look, look, it's moving. Look, oh, 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 your baby's kicking. And they refer to it as a living thing, your baby. It's a boy, it's a girl. Oh, it's kicking, it's moving. There's its heartbeat. Oh, we can monitor its brainwave, its heart, its heart wave. We, we identify it, everyone identifies it as a baby. My baby, it's a baby. But then abortion comes along and, and at the same time, while people are referring to it as a baby, we'll say, well, it's not really a living thing. It's just a potential baby and it's not really a baby until it's delivered and cut from it's the umbilical cord. That is, that's the definition of insanity. Everyone knows there's something inside the woman that's alive. It's eating. It's moving. It reacts to sound. Now you can say, well, when does life actually begin? When does it begin? I think we can all agree that there is a point in the development of the baby inside the womb that there stops being any real question that it's a baby because we start referencing it as a baby you can see, you can monitor heartbeat, brainwave, and it starts moving around. So at that point, I don't think there should be even a question. But it's, it, I think the whole thing about abortion is evil. It is crazy. It is insane. We, we see insanity ensues, right? A, a, a drunk driver hits a pregnant woman and the baby dies, right? Okay. And then they want to bring up charges of murder against the drunk driver. How can you, the drunk driver, be brought up on charges of murder for a baby that hasn't been born when the woman could have been on her way to an abortion clinic to kill the non-baby? It's either a baby or not a baby. There's just so many ins insane things about it. I believe Roe v. Wade is evil. I believe it was horrible. And it's led to horrible things um, the, the, the killing of millions of babies, and it's a horrible, horrible thing. I do believe that. But he believes it was an explosion that will lead to an implosion. Now, I'm about to make a lot of people mad. Are you telling me there haven't been other explosions in the formation of the United States of America way before we ever got to abortion that also resulted in death and horrible evils? We can go all the way back to the formation of this country. This country was established in colonies and these colonies were under the control of the British crown. And the people living here decided they didn't like the rules of the British crown. They believed that they were oppressive, repressive, and that they were unjust and they were wrong. And they rebelled against their earthly authority, which scripture seems to indicate from a Christian perspective, we're supposed to be submissive to that unless they're forbidding us to, you know, they're keeping us from obeying God or forcing us to disobey God. But this became about taxes and became about all kinds of other issues, not necessarily, oh, I can't be a Christian or I can't serve my God. And they rebelled, which led to an actual physical war, which led to actual people dying. And we began killing people in order to re re rebel and reject the authority that established the colonies in the first place. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that not an explosion that was going to lead to an implosion? We got rebellion. We got murder. We got killing. We got a war. People dying. Oh, 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 oh no, that was a good thing. Okay, okay. Well, well let's let's stop. So, so once we win the war and we gain our independence, woohoo! 
Then we decide we're gonna expand. I mean, we got this great big nation now that we've won our independence, it's ours. And we start moving out. And guess what we discover when we move out? Oh, there's people who, who are already there. Whoa. There are, they, they've, got, they've got communities established and they have families and they're hunting and they're using the land and they live there. Do they not have some claim to said land? Do they not own said land? Should they not be treated as human beings created in the image of... Oh, no. They're savages. They're less than human. And we began to kill, take, round up, and place in reservations. In many cases, lie, deceive, manipulate, and take their land. The eradication of the Native Americans who were here prior to to the arrival of those who set up those colonies. People died. People were murdered. Their land was taken. Now, I'm not saying there's a way to necessarily go back and somehow make all of that right. In every civilization, a stronger force moves in, kills off the weaker civilization, and then that stronger civilization is the one who thrives until another stronger civilization comes in and wipes them out, and then they continue. That's the way it works, and I believe the reason that happens is because man is depraved sinners, and I believe it's ungodly and wrong. And if it's ungodly when we see it in history books, it's ungodly when we did it. Recognizing wrong doesn't necessarily mean that we have to, you know, there's not a, a way to fix it, but we can acknowledge it. If we are going to say abortion is an explosion that will lead to an implosion, what was that? Stealing? Murder? What was that? I, I believe that was wrong as well. Then... So and and so we we could just go we could just go through these all right so we have the we have the revolutionary war okay we rebel against authority then we move out take land and then and then we oh we have something else happening in America oh yes we use human beings as property that we describe and define as being less than human, basically being ape-like, and we treat them as animals who we purchase and then use them as a labor force to enrich and to build for our prosperity. Yes, slavery. Slaves died being brought to this country. Whoever was responsible, they were still brought to this country, and then people in this country purchased them. And then many of them were beaten, tortured, used up. Horrible things occurred. Not everyone in America owned a slave. I'm not saying that. Just like not everyone in America has an abortion. Right? Uh, uh, okay, we've got to make that very clear. I'm saying that this is something that happened in our country. If Roe v. Wade is an explosion that's going to lead to the implosion of our country, what was the slave trade in the United States of America? And then, and then we could not settle our differences, not saying slavery was the only reason for the Civil War, but it definitely had a part in it, all right? Definitely was a part of it. We fought a war where we killed one another because we could not settle our differences, and it was brother against brother, family against pr family, a country divided, and we slaughtered one another. Ultimately, the slaves were freed, right? However, they were freed only to find themselves not treated 
as equals. And so laws were established in many parts of this country to take away their rights. They couldn't eat at the same table, at the same counter. They couldn't use the same water fountain. They couldn't use the same door. They couldn't go to the same school. They couldn't buy houses in the same neighborhoods. There was segregation. There was inequality. And then when those African Americans, those minorities began to say, wait a minute, we're being treated in a horrible way and tried to stand up for those rights, they were met by sometimes mobs, the KKK, they were lynched, they were burned, they were shot, they were killed, they, they, horrible things happened. And they're not the only, not just African Americans, lots of minorities, Chinese who came to this country, many immigrants who came to this country found themselves being treated as secondary citizens. That happened here in the United States of America. That's without, that wasn't an implosion or explosion to lead to an implosion. It's just funny that I guess the only explosions that have occurred in our country is the removal of prayer, Roe v. Wade, and the removal of sodomy laws. Whoa, that's going to bring our country down. Well, wait a minute. Our country was founded on questionable ideas, on questionable actions. Guess what? Every society, America, not America, guess what you have in every society? Sinful actions committed by sinful people. And if we're going to go through every nation and go, look, 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 they did four things. They're, an implosion is coming. Destruction is coming. Then every country, every civilization in America is doomed and an implosion is coming to everyone. But this is like, oh no, let's look at these three Supreme Court rulings. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna be doomed. And I guess the only way to save us, I bet you, is to elect conservatives who will put prayer back in school, who will revoke Roe v. Wade, and who will put sodomy laws back on the books. And then, bum, 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 we've made America great again, and we've saved the union. The logical fallacy in all of this. Just funny that those are the things he picked out. Those are the explosions that's going to bring it all down. And then he wants sodomy laws put back on the books? Now, let's just take this from a logical perspective. Okay, sodomy, homosexuality. Let's put laws back on the book to, to condemn it. We want laws to condemn people's sexuality, all right? Okay, so do we put laws on the books to condemn adultery? Now, what definition of adultery are we going to use? A biblical definition of adultery? Because the Bible seems to indicate that if a person is married, gets divorced, and gets remarried, that they now may be living in an adulterous relationship. So should all people who are, are married, divorced, and remarried, should they be now locked up on adultery charges? What other forms of adultery? Pornography? How about fornication? Teenagers who engage in premarital sex, should they be rounded up and arrested? 
Or is it just homosexuality? Is the only sexual sin that we want to criminalize, is it homosexuality? Is that the, is that the Christian standard? Hey, we want laws on the book that will go after sodomy and homosexuality. We want them locked up. But don't come knocking on our door for all, for all of our sexual impropriety. No, 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 no. Because we're not the explosion that's going to lead to an implosion. Just those homosexuals, they're going to be the thing that brings the country down. See, once you want to start exercising laws that somehow hold to a biblical morality, what, 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 what rules are you going to, how are you going to write the laws and who's, how are you going to enforce them and how, who you're going to punish? You can't just selectively going, the one sexual sin we want criminalized is sodomy. We, we don't want fornication uh, criminalized because, man, many Christian young people who commit premarital sex, they would end up in jail. Okay, we don't want adultery for those who are mar- who got married, got di- no, we don't, and, and, di- and divorced and remarried. We don't want them because, that, man, that would empty out a lot of churches. We don't want that. Um, oh, okay, we don't want uh, adultery from a, you know, lustful, pornographic way, like a man looking at porn commits adultery or emotional adultery. We don't want that. So you get to pick... How, how, like, that's the thing that led, led to, you know, to the downfall of our country? Now, we could sit back from a moral perspective and go, yes, our country, from a biblical perspective, immorality is spreading, it is growing, and we believe immorality and sin is a destructive force that destroys individuals, it destroys families, and it destroys the fa- fabric of our society. And we believe as Christians that we should call people to repent, repent! change their ways so that their ways would reflect a biblical lifestyle that we believe is beneficial for them, for their family, and for society. But here's what's interesting. Did you see Paul calling for the change of of laws in Rome? Didn't their laws allow for a lot of, you know, immoral actions? He called for people to repent and believe in the gospel and that the gospel was powerful to anyone who believed, whether Jew or Greek. That, that the gospel would, would, would transform them, would set them free. And he called them how to live out their Christian lives. He did not call for them to go change the laws in Rome saying, hey, hey, guess what, everyone? Rome is going to implode because of these three decisions created by the Roman government. Here are three decisions. And this is going to bring, you don't see Paul doing that. He's telling Christians, repent, live this way. Send, take the gospel to them. What America needs is the gospel. You didn't see Jesus calling for a change in the, the, the laws. He called for Christians to live out their lives. To be light, to be salt to the culture. The Bible never calls for some, you know, political reformation of society, but a spiritual reformation that comes through the preaching of his word. See, Christians say lots of things and they never take it to its logical conclusion. Oh, we want prayer in the school. Okay, great. Well, let's have prayer in the school. Uh, I'm going to bring a Muslim in to pray next week. And then the following week, I'm going, you know, no, 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 no. 
no, no, my kid is not going to sit and hear some Muslim praying to Allah. That's horrible. Well, you want the right, you share the right. It's like Christians getting mad because a department store won't say Merry Christmas. Here's a novel idea. It's not their job to promote Christmas, right? It's their job to make money. And if they don't want to say Merry Christmas, that's up to them. You know what you should do if you're a Christian? How about your church being open on Christmas? Christmas is so important. Actually have your doors open and have a service. But, but most Protestant churches are closed and tight. And there's, not a, not, there's not a sound, not even stirring of a mouse. Everything's quiet on Christmas where it's about Jesus. We're celebrating Jesus. But we've closed all of our doors and went home to get presents for ourselves. Yeah, Christians want to boycott department stores for not saying Merry Christmas. But if you want to go to church to worship Christ on Christmas, you better find a Catholic church. <laughs> Right? Hey, we want we you know we Roe v. Wade is horrible and it's gonna and it's gonna bring down our country, but we ignore all the other horrible things that have occurred in the name of our country. No, that doesn't that does not take away the evil of Roe v. Wade. I'm not saying it does. I hate abortion. Just interesting that that's what he chooses. People could be preaching the same sermon back then, going, "Hey, I, I think." I think these people, that land over there that we're about to kill all of them and take it from, I think maybe that may be immoral. Hey, um, I see all those people in the back of your property picking cotton, um, and I saw someone whipping one of them. Um, are, are those human beings that you bought and you, you own? Do, do you think that possibly is immoral? Wait, wait. I, if I walk into this restaurant, uh, the the a person of color can't use the same door and he can't sit at the same table. Hey, does anyone find this immoral? Someone could be saying, this is an explosion that will lead to an implosion. Every society has evil in their history because every society is made up of evil people. To say that that's the turning point and this is going to bring a nation down... One, do you, where do you get that in Scripture? Now, sin is a reproach to a nation. Sin is destructive to a nation. No question. I agree with that. But I'm not for trying to force biblical morality necessarily on people. I need to preach the gospel to people, and I need to try to live out the biblical morality in my own life. Well, well, we're worried about sodom, sodomy laws in, in, in America and trying to somehow change sodomy laws. Maybe we should worry about how many children are being sexually abused and molested within churches. Southern Baptist churches, independent fundamental Baptist churches, Catholic churches. And there's already laws on the books against that, okay, right? I know, I can just, I can feel the anger rising in people. So I'll end with this. There's a lot more I could say. You may be asking me, well, do you believe, do you believe that there is some uh, judgment that's coming upon America? Here's what I know. God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He can judge who he wants to judge. Is there judgment coming upon the world? Biblically, we, would, we definitely know that is going to occur. What's the solution to that? Is calling people to repent and believe in the gospel. 
do we want a, a more moral world? The best way to, uh, incl- to the best way from a biblical argument to make a better, a more moral world is to present the gospel to people and disciple people so that they will be more, more, more moral. And then they go and share the gospel with others. And then our moral example hopefully will be a light and salt to those in the world and go, their lives seem to be better and they want what we have. I just, I just think it's, I think it's very interesting that some Christians are still fighting for pr- that. That he uses these three explosions: prayer, Roe v. Wade, and sodomy laws, gay marriage laws, etc., as his e- explosion points. Because these are things that Christians still want to fight politically. So I, I don't know if he really wants a biblical solution or if he wants a political solution. I mean, you, you, you've heard the sermon. You can, you can draw your own conclusion there. I'm trying to be fair. But I'm trying to take it beyond the sermon to just the argument in general. God, God can bring judgment. but He could have brought judgment on America for a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. All right? We are grateful that he has not destroyed our country. But pretty much every country in the world, from a biblical perspective, stands guilty and condemned by God. And, and God would be right to destroy it. We, we read the Old Testament where God is going to bring, you know, judgment to Israel and he sends prophets to warn them. But those prophets were giving direct revelation by God that judgment was coming in a specific time in a specific way. I can't read my Bible and have specific going, this, this proves that judgment is coming to America next week. I can't do that. Because I don't have scripture and my revelation I get comes from the pages of the Bible, not from some gut feeling. I can't say, well, God judged Israel for this, so he will judge America for this. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign. All right, so this is what I'm going to do. I will end this by playing uh, the segment from the Janet Mefford radio program where she interviews Pastor Robert Jeffress on his sermon, The Coming Implosion of America. His perspective is obviously radically different than mine, but I just want to be fair. So I'm not going to sit there and listen to the interview and stop and take it apart. I've already spoken for 53 minutes, but hey, I'm giving you plenty to listen to. I'm giving you everything that you could want and more. All right, I'll stop right there. I know I have offended people. I hope you understand. Someone needs to offer a, a, a counterpoint. That's all I can say. Everyone is praising the sermon. I'm questioning the sermon. I'm questioning logic. I'm questioning history. I'm questioning it from a biblical perspective, from a logical perspective, from, you know, just, I'm just, you know, and I hope you understand. I think prayer is, I think Christians should pray. And I think churches you know, can do, they can find a hundred. Here's what I know. I've had people complain before. Well, we don't, you know, we should pray more at church. I'm like, okay, well, we can meet up here on Saturday nights and pray. We can have an entire hour of prayer on Saturday nights. So the people who complained that we didn't have enough prayer, I opened. The, I came up to the church every Saturday night, opened the door, and guess what? Those people who complained we didn't pray enough at church didn't bother to show up. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, wonder why that is. Roe v. Wade, horrible, 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 horrible. I pray that abort, that I, what I ultimately pray is not just the law changes. I, I pray that there is a, that there's that people's eyes are open to see that it is murder. 
Laws can't change hearts. But I, I would hope that obviously we can preserve the life of babies, but you get the idea. Changing hearts is even better. Sodomy, homosexuality, I believe it's a sin. I believe it's condemned in the Bible. I do. I absolutely believe it's condemned in the Bible. But if I'm going to start having laws to, pro to prosecute and persecute and criminalize sexual behavior and sexual sin, there's a whole lot of sexual sins in the Bible that I could also be criminalized. How come we never want those criminalized? It's always easy to criminalize the sin of others while, while not criminalizing the sin of your own. Just, just thinking it through from a biblical, logical, historical perspective. That's all I'm trying to do. All right, here is the audio from the Janet Mefford radio program. You're going to hear her talk to Pastor Robert Jeffress, and I keep saying his name wrong, but Pastor Robert Jeffress on his sermon, um, the, Co the Coming Up Implosion of America, that he preached at a Bible prophecy conference. Everyone's talking about it. We've talked about it. We've analyzed it. Now you can hear him discuss it. And then you can choose your side. But here's the side I want you to be more worried about. The biblical side. The biblical side. Not your side, not my side. The biblical side. That's the only side that really matters. Here is the audio. Listen carefully. You're listening to Janet Mefford Live. Janet Mefford Live. On American Family Radio. We are back. Well, Psalm 33:12 says, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord." So, what does that mean for America? Because given our moral and spiritual and political crises, are we a nation on the brink of collapse? It's one of those really hard questions that I hear a lot of Christians asking these days. And we're going to get some thoughts on it now from Dr. Robert Jeffress, senior pastor of First Baptist Dallas. He recently preached a sermon on the topic of America's coming implosion, and we're so glad you're here, Dr. Jeffress. How are you today? Great, Janet. Good to be with you. Great to have you here. I saw this and I thought to myself, I would really love to get Dr. Jeffress's perspective on this because there, this is something I hear a lot of Christians talking about. Where is this country headed? What does God think of America? What is the role of the church in these days? What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, this isn't being fatalistic. It's being realistic. And uh, I'm the first one to uh, celebrate the positive direction that I've seen our nation going in the last two years with a Christian, who, uh, with a president who supports pro-Christian policies. But as I look at the very long-term, Janet, and more importantly, I look at the Bible, we know that America is eventually going to collapse. I don't know if that's in 10 years or 10,000 years. Uh, one way I know that is from the Bible itself. When I look at the book of Revelation, I see that the final seven years of Earth's history before the return of Jesus Christ will be a one-world government, no freedom of speech, no freedom of commerce, no freedom of religion, which means America will have ceased to exist as we know it in those final seven years. And then I think, and I said this in my sermon, there's a practical reason I believe there's going to be an ultimate collapse or implosion, and that is what has happened in our country over the last 60 years. I use the analogy of when we imploded our uh, facility here at First Dallas on six city blocks of downtown. They took dynamite, they attached it to the infrastructure of these buildings, they exploded the uh, dynamite, and once the infrastructure of the buildings was gone, the buildings collapsed under their own weight. And I talked about three explosive decisions by the Supreme Court, uh, Engel versus Vitale, 1962, that removed prayer, uh, Roe v. Wade, 1973, 
2015, Obergefell versus Hodges that uh, legalized same-sex mes- uh, marriages. I said, whenever you have a nation that basically outlaws the mention of God in the public square, that uh, that sanctifies the murder of the unborn, over 53 million children, and destroys the most basic unit of society, the family, you know you're going to have an eventual collapse. Well, you're right about that, and it is true that none of us know the future. We don't know when Christ will return. All of those things are hidden from us. We have to just watch as it unfolds little by little. But I I think when we're looking across the spectrum of the United States, you mentioned something very important, and that was when we're talking about the eventual implosion, we're talking about a one-world government, no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion. Those two in particular, I think, are very much on the minds of Christians right now. When we see how big tech is censoring Christians online and and content that they don't like online. And when we're seeing the attack on freedom of religion through uh, measures like the Equality Act, for example, there is a rise here that is very concerning to the church and begs the question, what should we be doing about it? Well, again, you know, we're not to be despondent about it. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew five thirteen and 14, he said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And, you know, I talked about in my message that salt in Jesus' day was a preservative. It didn't prevent the decay of meat, but it did delay the decay of meat. It gave the meat a longer shelf life uh, until it eventually had to be thrown out. And in a way, Janet, the Bible says God has left us in this world as a preservative to delay the decay of our world so that people have longer to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I use this analogy. Imagine a giant uh, dam that is in danger of uh, collapsing, crumbling, and uh, there's a village below filled with people who are in danger of being flooded. And a group of concerned townspeople go up, and they push up against that dam. Then they know ultimately their effort is futile. Ultimately, that dam is going to burst. But they are pushing back against that dam while at the same time yelling at the top of their lungs for the people below to go find safety, a place of refuge. And that's really what we Christians are trying to do. We're not going to save this culture. We're not going to prevent its ultimate collapse. But we're to push back against evil for as long as we can to give people an opportunity to hear the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the light is Jesus talked about. We're to be a preservative, pushing back against evil, but at the same time, we're to be sharing the light of Jesus Christ. What we're not to be doing is getting in our little spiritual silos and insulating ourselves from the rest of the world. That's why I say Christians ought to get involved in politics. Not that we're going to save America or save the world through politics, but it is a way for us to push back against evil that threatens to engulf the world. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? Somebody had said at one point, I can't remember who the original source was on this, but there have been voices out there saying, well, you know, all of these tax attacks on freedom of religion, they might actually be good for the church. And so maybe we should just get it, you know, let it roll along as it's been and and don't worry about it. God is sovereign. And, and this kind of defeatist talk that a lot of us look at and say, well, wait a minute, like you said, Dr. Jeffers, we are to be salt and light. We're not to be uninvolved and just sit home and say, Jesus will come back tomorrow, probably, so why should I lift a finger? In fact, if we lose our freedom of religion, you look at what is happening in places like China, and now they're doing an even bigger crackdown on Christianity. But in other parts of the world, the church did not grow under persecution. How do you see the loss of freedom of religion as being used by some in the church right now to say, well, we don't really need it. Don't worry about it. 
the only people who think persecution is a good thing are those who never suffered persecution. Yes. Uh, it's real easy to be lighthearted about it or think it's good if you're not going through it yourself. We should not welcome persecution. We ought to stand up and push back against it for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, as well as encroachments upon religious liberty in our world today. Remember, Janet, the Apostle Paul spent two years fighting in the Roman legal system for his rights as a Roman citizen. Yes. He could have said, well, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. If I'm in prison, that's okay. No, he wanted the freedom as a Roman citizen to preach the gospel. And we ought to fight for those freedoms that our forefathers gave their life's blood to provide for us as well. And uh, yes, uh, even through persecution, God can use that for good, but no sane Christian ought to welcome and invite persecution. Well, and when you consider the history in this country of missionary activity alone, the, the base from which so many thousands of missionaries have gone out into the world and preached the gospel precisely because we did have First Amendment freedoms that most other countries don't enjoy seems to be a very good argument for fighting for freedom of religion. And the good news is that we've seen a lot of support for that in our current government. The Trump administration has been very, very supportive of religious freedom. Do you see the support for President Trump's religious freedom protections in, in ensuring that he will be able to stay popular enough to be reelected? I know none of us know whether or not he would be reelected or what will happen in the future, but the left has fought so hard against yes. every move by the administration to help Christians in any area. How do you see this potentially playing out as we go forward? Well, of course, as you know, the president won election in 2016 by the largest evangelical margin in history. I think it will be even larger among Christians this next time, because this next time he's not running on promises made, but promises he has kept. And, Janet, regardless of what people think about the president, I mean, he has kept every promise he has made to evangelical Christians about a conservative judiciary and especially about the life movement and about religious liberty. So I think he's going to be strong there. Whether or not that's enough to overcome uh, the uh, left, I don't know. But, you know, we saw him this week at the highest approval rating of his presidency, 47 percent. The president told me recently, he said, Robert, remember, any poll taken about me, you can add 10 points to it, because people <laughs> don't want to admit they're voting for him. But uh, so I think he's in a good position. And look, he's the first person to say, I'm not a perfect person. But I really do believe he believes that Christianity has been marginalized in our country over the last decades, and that has not been a good thing for our country. Yeah. When we look at the whole line that made Trump so famous, I mean, he was famous before he became president, obviously, but his signature line, Make America Great Again, all of us understand as Christians that without the biblical foundation of this country, this country never could have become great in the first place. And really returning to full greatness, as we all see it in the past, uh, sins notwithstanding, we need the Lord again in this country. And many Christians, I think, are asking the question, what should we be doing? We need to preach the word of God. We need to fulfill the Great Commission. We need to be salt and light. But from your vantage point, Dr. Jeffress, where you are you know, very much in ministry and very much involved in the political scene, what would you like to see average Christians doing right now to try to move this country back to a knowledge and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, look, you know, Go back to Matthew 5 and Jesus' instructions. 
he didn't say, you are the salt of the earth, but if you're not comfortable doing that, you can be the light of the world. You know, there's this <laughs> debate among Christians about, well, do we get involved in politics and trying to push back against evil, or should we just concentrate on sharing the gospel? Well, the answer to that is yes and yes. Right. <laughs> we do both things. Christians right. have got to learn, Janet, to multitask if we're going to be successful in doing what God has called us to do. That's but true. remember, salt doesn't do the meat any good while it's still in the salt shaker. It needs to get out of the shaker. It needs to penetrate the meat. You know, it was Abraham Cooper who said, uh, there's not one square inch of this universe over which Christ does not scream out, mine. Uh, God is not just sovereign over the church. He's sovereign over all creation, all institutions. And I believe we're to get involved and not get in our spiritual silos and wait for the end to come. I think that's really good advice. And get out and vote. When you consider all the millions of Christians who aren't even registered to vote, that just blows my mind. That's exactly right. And again, it is we're to do that, but, you know, we ought to have, here in our church, we promote people every at the beginning of every, every year to fill out a little card called My Three, three people that they're going to pray for salvation and try to witness to in the coming year. That's where revival is going to come, not from Washington, D.C., but from the Church of Jesus Christ. I love it. Well, Dr. Robert Jeffress, always great to talk to you. Thank you again for being with us, and God bless. Thanks, Janet. All right. You take care. We'll be back on Janet Mefford Live after this. It's my turn. Here is your host for My Turn, Don Wildman. A woman's scream suddenly startled a party of surveyors at a dinner in a forest in northern Virginia on a calm, sunny day in 1750. The men ran in the direction of the scream. One of the first to reach the scene was an 18-year-old. Please, sir, please make them release me, the woman said as several held her. My boy is drowning and they'll not let me go to save him. One of those holding her yelled, It would be madness. She'll jump into the river and drown herself. Well, the young man threw off his coat, sprang to the edge of the bank, scanned for a moment the rocks and whirling currents, and then, catching a glimpse of the boy, plunged into the roaring rapids. Thank God, the mother said. He will save my boy. Everyone watched as the young would-be rescuer fought the rocks and the whirlpools. Twice the rescuer disappeared from sight, only to come back. He was nearing the part of the river that was most dangerous. The rush of the waters was so dangerous at that spot that no one had ever dared approach it, even in a canoe. And into the middle of it he went. Finally he grabbed the boy, lifted him above the water with his strong right arm. But at that moment those standing on the bank cried in horror, both the youth and the child shot over the falls and vanished into the waters below. Following a deadly few seconds, the mother shouted, There they are, see, they're safe! Soon the youth, exhausted, and the boy, senseless, reached the bank. The friends were there to meet him. God will give you a reward, solemnly spoke the grateful woman. He will do great things for you in return for this day's work and the blessings of thousands other than mine shall be yours. You know, we call it courage, that thing that made the youngster do what he did. When others refused, were afraid, called it hopeless, 
he jumped into the water without thought of any danger he faced. One thing raced in his mind above everything else. There was another human who needed help. Courage is a wonderful thing. It's something that you don't normally get overnight. You have to work at it, make it a way of life. The carpenter had it too, you know. He was a man who inspired others with his courage. When they threatened him with bodily harm, he stood fast. When they gave him a choice between a lie or a cross, he chose the cross and truth. Oh, I nearly forgot that the woman's prediction about the young man, it proved correct. Some 39 years later, he was installed as the first president of the new country called the United States of America. His name was George Washington. This has been My Turn with Don Wildman, a production of the American Family Association. And now, back to Janet Mefford Live. Janet Mefford Live on American Family Radio. Well, we recently passed the 4th of July, as you know, just a few weeks ago now. Boy, this summer's flying, isn't it? We're going to be turning around, and it's going to be fall, and the leaves are going to be coming down. But anyway, we, we just went past our most recent Independence Day, and it really is hard to take for for me on a personal level to all these people who are just into hating America. And we're seeing more and more and more of this stuff. And we've seen it not only with those who are, you know, burning flags and screaming during the Independence Day fireworks and the whole big Fourth of July celebration in Washington, D.C., but we've seen it with all of these attacks on the founders, not just the ideas, but get rid of Western civilization texts on college campuses. And, you know, we should tear down all these statues and we should erase, you know, just basically erase American history. And anybody who ever owned a slave, no matter what else he did in his lifetime, he must be eradicated, all this kind of stuff. Brings me to this latest story. Did you hear what they've done in San Francisco? That's always a million-dollar question. Guess what they're doing in San Francisco today? This is via the Daily Signal. The San Francisco Board of Education has unanimously voted in favor of painting over a George Washington mural series on a school wall depicting Washington standing over a Native American's corpse and another in the company of slaves on his Mount Vernon estate. Mark Sanchez, Education Board Commissioner, was asked about the estimated $600,000 price tag for doing this, and his quote in response was, this is reparations. It's reparations to paint over a George Washington mural This could take about a year to complete. This is a 1,600-square-foot mural series. It's called Life of Washington. It was painted on San Francisco's George Washington High School in 1936 by a Russian-American artist and Stanford University art professor named Viktor Arnotov. It was funded by the New Deal's Works Progress Administration and shows a variety of scenes from Washington's life. School District spokeswoman Laura Dudnick confirmed that although only two mural pieces stand out as offensive to members of the community, the board's decision would apply to all 13 panels of the mural. Erase George Washington. Get rid of the guy. School board members had to decide whether to cover and preserve the painting using panels or textile or completely erase it by painting over it. Buckling under pressure from those who find the images offensive to certain members of the school community, the board decided, yeah, let's go ahead and paint over it. Advocates for removing the mural included local high school students, George Washington High School graduates, and Native Americans. 
During a public comment portion of a recent meeting, Paloma Flores, the program coordinator for the district's Indian education program. Wait, I thought you weren't allowed to say Indian anymore. Anyway, this is what Paloma said. It's not a matter of offense. It's a matter of the right to learn without a hostile environment. Intent does not negate lived experience. It's just nonsense. You have a right to learn without a hostile environment. Do I? Well, then will you go back in time and get rid of all my liberal teachers and all of the liberal comments made by my liberal teachers? Because I was learning in a hostile environment. Please, somebody save me. I need a safe space. I'm triggered. No, somehow I managed to get an education and rise above it. What these people don't understand is life is not going to be sanitized for you, folks. And I'm not even speaking on the George Washington issue in particular. You are not going to go out into the world and have everything organized like your Twitter feed where you can decide who gets to follow you and who you read. Life is full of people who don't agree with you, who may have ideas that you find objectionable or offensive or wrong. And there are even people out there who will be offensive to you. And if you listen to them, you might change your mind and say, oh, my goodness, you were right. If I never heard your opposing viewpoint, I never would have been able to put away my error. This is something that's left out of all of this. What if I'm wrong? Think of all the times in your life where you really held to a particular position on something. Maybe it was a theological point. Maybe it was something regarding your life. You know, you you dug in with some family member or friend on a particular issue. And then at some point, because of some circumstance, you turned around one day and said, oh, my, you know what? I'm wrong. I was wrong. I was fighting to the death. I've had that experience before when I was young. Uh, I, I'll fight and fight and fight on something, and then the other person has a better argument, and all of a sudden, uh, I don't have an answer. And then I would have to say, well, I'm going to have to think about that because I don't really have a response. That's good for us because nobody is born and nobody innately has all of the answers right. Isn't that the purpose of education in the first place? It isn't merely to give you facts and figures to memorize and regurgitate on a text, on a test, I should say, or in an exam or any sort of paper that you write, you know, a dissertation or what have you. That's not the whole deal with education. Sure, you have to learn facts and figures, but ideally education should be about teaching you how to think. And how are you going to learn how to think if they erase history? They don't care because their whole deal is not, teaching people how to think, their idea is teaching people how to be indoctrinated to go along with the plan, go along with liberalism. And I'm sorry, but how valid is your point of view and how valid is your worldview when you have to stamp out the opposition or stamp out something you don't like or stamp out something you find offensive? It's ridiculous. Now, mural critics in the community believe the artist's intentions are irrelevant in light of the harm to young people of color daily confronted by images of their ancestors debased. All right, well, if we're talking about a George Washington picture where he's standing over a Native American's corpse and another in the company of slaves, that's history, isn't it? I mean, we we did have wars. We did have slavery. Is that, why would that trigger me? You know, I, I could see all sorts of pictures of Christians, how about the Ten Boom family in the concentration camp during World War II? And that would trigger me because I'm also of Western European descent, and that triggered me because people who were in my line perhaps were also there. Okay, but that's not my experience. I wasn't there. That was years before I was ever born, many, many years before I was ever born. Why would I feel triggered by something that long ago? I would feel sad. I would feel depressed. I would feel very, very angry. 
But I would feel that way because it was wrong and because we never want that to happen again to anybody. Not because I took it personally. How could I take it personally? It was not my experience. But I guess I'm sounding old again. Native American Barbara Mumby Huerta, who staffs the San Francisco Art Commission, challenged statements on historical accuracy, saying that the mural is ignorant of indigenous people. She said to portray a native person face down dead, you're trapping their soul so that they cannot move on. What? It's a picture. One mural supporter says he plans to legally challenge the move to paint over the mural. Lope Yap Jr., vice president of the school's alumni group, vowed to use every tactic available for litigation. Before the school board meeting, the San Francisco Chronicle polled art leaders in the Bay Area about the controversy. The director of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art said, I am deeply sensitive to the pain that this situation is causing the student body and Washington High School community. A decision to paint over the mural is irreversible. The option to cover the artwork with panels to allow future educational research keeps open that opportunity. I, You know, this it's San Francisco, so we all understand that, but... Look at this stuff in context. Here's another example, and this just happened a few days ago, too. Did you know Charlottesville, Virginia, will no longer be celebrating Thomas Jefferson's birthday? Yeah, this is what the city council has decided. I'm only now getting to this. City officials voted to scrap the holiday, according to Fox, in honor of the slave-owning third president of the U.S. and instead adopted Liberation and Freedom Day to be celebrated each March 3rd. That commemorates the day that U.S. Army forces arrived in Virginia in 1865 near the end of the Civil War. This is a decision that came just days after James Fields Jr., the driver of that card at the Unite the Right rally who killed a woman and injured dozens of other people, was sentenced to life behind bars. So Charlottesville doesn't want to have an association, apparently, any excessive association with Thomas Jefferson and his birthday. So ridiculous. You know, we were at Monticello just recently. Our family went to Monticello because we had never been there. And it was, you know, it, it was a neat place to go and to see. And there were a lot of neat things in Monticello inside the house. We got to see Thomas Jefferson's boots and some of his original books. And yet the whole presentation, most of the presentation was very politically correct. And it took, I'm sorry, but it took all the fun out of it. It took all the fun out of it. Nobody said that Thomas Jefferson was a perfect person. He wasn't a perfect person, but he was brilliant. And he wrote our declaration of independence and he had immeasurable contributions to this country. And it's not just because they're against slavery that they want to do this. I mean, even Jefferson freed slaves. So, you know, they talk about that a little bit at Monticello. But why is it, do you think, that you have people who not only want to do different things with this country, but they just want to erase our past? Because that's really what is happening bit by bit by bit by bit. They're raising America, R-A-Z-I-N-G. They're raising it. They want to anyway. You can't completely raise America, but they would like to be able to do that incrementally. Get rid of the founders, cast dispersions on the founders. These guys were, at at root, they were really bad guys. That George Washington, mm, mm, he's in a mural. He's standing over a Native American, and this, you know, he's killing his soul. And Thomas Jefferson, bad guy. He had slaves. We can't pay any attention to him. What happens to our country when you denigrate all the founding fathers who are the heroes who will replace them that's what i want to know are we going to start all worshiping you know barack obama again Mm-mm-mm. barack hussein obama are we going to go back to that because i don't think that that's a good plan let's talk to you 888-588 sorry 888-589-8840 we'll come back an intentional parent is also someone who figures out how to provide serious fun It's important to help your kids learn to enjoy themselves. 
Here's Doug Fields on Focus on the Family Minute. And some of you don't like this because you, how does this make your top 10 list? Really? That of all the things that parents need to have kids experience, serious fun makes the top 10 list? Yes, and here's why. Because today's generation of kids are totally stressed out. They're totally, totally stressed out. Why? Well, one, because we live in a, a faster culture. And two is because they're, for many of them, their parents are driven, especially in this area. The parents are driven and parents put a lot of pressure on them to perform and succeed and be quote unquote successful kids because successful kids makes insecure parents feel better about themselves. More fun parenting advice from Doug Fields at FamilyMinute.org. Target is in the bullseye because of its transgender bathroom policy. A petition by the American Family Association to boycott Target now surpassing a million signatures and counting. People have their own beliefs and stuff, but what can it hurt? What can it hurt? What can it hurt? It, hurt? it hurts our daughters. It hurts you. It hurts our families. It hurts me. It hurts all of us. Sign the petition to boycott Target at AFA.net. Today's culture is opting for entertainment rather than biblical enlightenment. For those who resist that trend, Friends of Israel shows listeners why loving the Jewish people and supporting Israel is important to the Christian faith. Friends of Israel shares biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah and promotes solidarity with the Jewish people. This is Chris Katolka of the Friends of Israel Today radio program heard each weekend on this station. And here's what's happening in Israel. Friends of Israel, Saturday afternoon at 2, here on American Family Radio. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt, credit card debt, and I heard a commercial for Trinity. I gave them a call. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. When I first called, I was a little embarrassed and kind of ashamed, and I looked at the numbers, and I saw how quickly that astronomical debt that was in my life would go away. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. What I would tell other people, please pick up the phone and call Trinity. Just let them put together a program and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. Call 888-589-8840 and tell Janet what's on your mind. This is Janet Bedford Live. Janet Bedford Live on American Family Radio. Well, we are talking about the decision by the San Francisco School Board to destroy an 83-year-old mural of George Washington because of how it depicts minorities. I mean, this is just standard leftist stuff. The Washington Examiner actually had an interesting opinion piece called Whitewash Supremacy. And they mentioned that this is odd because the black laborers and Native Americans depicted in the artwork aren't shown as blithe companions of their white oppressors. The mural's 13 panels include images of slaves in cotton fields and a dead Native American man lying face down on the ground at the pioneer's feet. These make it quite clear that Washington and his peers were far from perfect. Nevertheless, despite this unvarnished realism, the city's Board of Education made this vote to unanimously uh, paint over this mural. I mean, that's the thing. Why can't you use the mural as an opportunity to teach kids? 
Well, because they don't they because they don't want to. They'd like the founders apparently to go away. Just go away. People are upset. The other thing that bugs me in this whole thing is the heckler's veto. I'm getting really tired of the heckler's veto. One person or a couple of people, that offends me. Well, are we supposed to just eradicate everything if one or two, three people are offended all the time? I'm not really sure where this madness stops. Maybe you have some thoughts. We'll go to your calls, 888-589-8840. Let's go first to Mark in Ohio. Hi, Mark. Janet, how are you doing? Okay. Hey, um... This is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Well, first off, with that mural thing, those who fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's what they want. They don't want us to remember because that way people won't have anything to compare their uh, anarchy to when they bring it to pass. But um, on the lighter side, with the um, the soccer crisis for women, if we would let transgender men play on the women's soccer team, they're more athletic People would go to see it more. It'll boost attendance, more revenue. Not only that, Megan Rappenhoe couldn't say anything because she knows she she would be labeled transphobic if she did. I think it will solve a number of problems. Hopefully, the whole thing will just go away. But um, you know, use their own game, use their own tactics to ba- or throw their own tactics in their face to yeah. defeat them. I mean, I know that won't happen, but honestly, that is a solution. Well, we're doing it on, on high school level. You know what? You got you got a good thought there. And I know we're, we're going on a little bit different track. But that that Megan, that soccer player, like when is her 15 minutes going to be up? I was saying this the other day uh, at home and I was saying, you know, it's like she's the new Cindy Sheehan. Like she she's the new leftist darling who shows up on the scene and she's she's just their mouthpiece for everything that they hate about America and they hate about the president and they hate about culture or uh, that reflects any sort of Christian values, and that would be kind of funny. I do have to admit that if you had a bunch of uh, transgender men, well, what do they call them, transgender women, which really means you're a man pretending to be a woman, and then you join the woman's uh, soccer team, <laughs> Megan can't compete. I don't know. You're right. I don't think that would ever happen, but it would be quite comedic to try to interview her if that scenario ever played itself out. I agree with you. We'll see what happens. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Let's go to Randy in Missouri next. Hi, Randy. Hey, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. during the Bush administration. I was there attending, well, we had numerous pro-life events. One was a prayer vigil um, in front of the uh, Catholic Church where they're having a mass for the um, Supreme Court justices that were uh, Catholic. But anyway, before... Prior to that, I was at a Bible study at the Washington Monument, where the Bible study instructor, the teacher, was uh, an impersonator of George Washington. He, he, he looked like George Washington, and he, had, he was kind of a, hi- a historian as well. And as we were having the Bible study, the park police came over to kick George and the rest of us off the, off the uh, Washington Monument grounds. So, why? Why Why did you have to leave? There are people on the Washington grounds all the time. We were all being peaceful, but uh, they pointed out that there was uh, something to do with the Bible study itself. I mean, we're, it was a very small group. There was a dozen of us there, maybe. Um, but uh, George, George couldn't um, occupy his uh, monument and uh, instruct the Bible. From, from the monument grounds, so apparently there was a rule there. I'm not, I'm not sure what it was, what what was cited at the time. 
So, but uh, later on, when we were back at the uh, Catholic Church for the Mass, um, uh, the security, uh, I'm, I'm thinking it's uh, Secret Service, I don't know who, but uh, they, they were watching with rifles from, from a building. So apparently they thought we were a danger over there as well. Good grief. That's crazy. That's really, It doesn't surprise me, really, but that's just crazy. I don't see what problem there would be with people having a Bible study, a small group of people having a Bible study on the National Mall. Who cares? I don't know if they got complaints, but ah, it is frustrating, isn't it? it why, why would anybody do that? I have no idea. Yeah, thanks a lot, Randy. Appreciate it. Thomas in Arkansas is next. Hello, Thomas. Hello, Janet. Hi. You've got a great show going today. I just wanted to comment on the mural that's being wanted to be painted over in San Francisco because of uh, maybe a slave being uh, portrayed on it. I would like to say is that slavery was not invented in the United States. But under our great Constitution and our wonderful flag, we ended slavery. Right. We stopped it. That's what we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate that this country put an end to slavery. That's right. That's right. And we say that all the time. You know, we fought a civil war to free the slaves. And I know, don't write to me, people, and tell me, come on, we know that that was not the reason for the civil war. It was about states' rights. I know it was about states' rights. But if you're on the subject of slavery, you have to wind into it, the civil war and the fact that you had hundreds of thousands of people give their lives in the civil war. So, yeah, but they don't want to talk about eradicating slavery and correcting our mistakes and our sins. They don't want to talk about that because how do you keep your grievance industry going if you talk about forgiveness and if you talk about rectifying a problem and solving a problem and putting into place further laws that will protect people who formerly were enslaved and their ancestors who are now descendants of those slaves who enjoy full freedom under the Constitution because those wrongs were righted. You cannot perpetuate a grievance industry if you were acknowledging that openly and talking about it all the time because it would require people to move on. And that's exactly what they don't want to do. This is the same side of the aisle that was yelling, move on, move on, move on, dot org under Bill Clinton. Move on. We don't have to talk about about what the president is doing immorally with Monica Lewinsky. We don't want to talk about that. Move on. Well, they only want to move on when they don't want to talk about the subject at hand. So we need to keep that in mind. Thank you so much for the call. Let's go next to Karen in Kansas. Hi, Karen. Hi. I am so um, glad you brought this up. I have a question. You know, you were talking about the heckler's, what was it, the heckler's veto? Yes. Okay. That's all these individuals that are are wimpy that say, oh, you're making me offended, so you have to change everything for me. Well, yes. okay, my part of it is the judges are heckler vetoes, too. Janet, can you explain to me why they can be one judge across the nation that stops everything that President Trump does when he is actually the one that stops up control? And why isn't there some conservative person, that a judge, that can come back and say, well, I disagree with that, and I say it's going to be this way then? I know there's a lot of that that goes on. I, when you said that the, about the judiciary and the heckler's veto, I was thinking about Justice Kennedy for a moment on the Obergefell decision because he was the one that was talking about, oh, well, we have homosexuals in our country who just don't have their dignity honored. Like, that's not what is that all about? You're all of a sudden unilaterally de- declaring what dignity means in regard to 
uh, disregarding all of the constitutional protections for federalism and the rights of the states to decide about marriage. And you're setting aside the history of American tradition and the history of the world on what marriage actually is. I I know this is and this brings up a good point, Karen, when you talk about conservative judges, because that's exactly why it's good to have a president in office where you can get some conservative judges on the bench. We need a lot more, by the way. But they know that that's uh, that is a really bad thing for the left because that's what they do. You stack the courts and then some justice decides this is offending me. Think about for a moment. I'm thinking of his name. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. I'll probably remember it the minute I go off the air because that's how it goes. Oh, Vaughn, Vaughn, Justice Vaughn. He was the guy who was the homosexual judge who stopped Proposition 8. Now, that's where all the trouble began because that guy had a vested interest in the issue. He should have recused himself if he was really fair-minded, but he didn't do it. And so... That's what started the ball rolling. And then all of a sudden you got these court challenges to the Prop 8. And then you got court challenges to the Defense of Marriage Act. And then it went on and on and ended up with Obergefell. Justices who are, I guess if you want to call it a heckler's veto, issuing a heckler's veto because of their personal feelings are a real threat to justice. I think when you find that in any particular venue, any court in this land where you have a justice doing that, that's a bad thing. So I agree. Thanks a lot, Karen. Appreciate it. Let's go next to Hector in Texas. Hi, Hector. Uh, hello. Hi. Great show today. Uh, Thank yes, you. I just wanted to comment on the mural removal in the city of San Francisco. Yes, sir. Um, it reminded it reminded me of, uh, and some people have already heard. I know it's been presented on American Family Radio from time to time, but the instant. When back in 1963, um, Democrat um, senator or congressman, sorry, from the state of Florida, Albert Sidney Herlong Jr., read uh, the 45 goals from the Communist Manifesto, the Naked Communist, and um, um, one of the one of the goals was to subvert U.S. history to uh, eliminate our, our monuments, to eliminate uh, the founding fathers. Yeah, I'm out of time, Hector. I appreciate your calling in and mentioning that. It's important to preserve history. By the way, it's Vaughn Walker. See, I knew I'd remember eventually. (laughs) Judge Vaughn Walker was the Prop 8 guy. Hey, listen, we're out of time, but thanks a lot for tuning in, and we'll see you next time here on American Family Radio. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.